My guest today, Irina, conducted an interview with a UK volunteer working for a mission to evacuate civilians from Ukraine's front lines. Forging a human corridor under constant bombardment is only half the battle. It also takes enormous effort to convince civilians to leave. British photographer turned volunteer Ignatius Ivlev York and his team have evacuated thousands of Ukrainians to safer locations across Ukraine and abroad and has explained the challenging operations to Irina in an amazing interview recently. Well, we're going to put a link to that video in the description of this video, and we're going to discuss many other topics around the challenges of reporting this war, as well as these brave individuals that are operating close to or on the front lines. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material you create, then please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of the videos on YouTube to help other people discover our fantastic guests. Irina Matvyshin is a Ukrainian journalist and producer. Irina is also a video reporter at the Kiev Independent. She previously worked as a freelance journalist with various international media. She was also an analyst, a video producer, and a project coordinator at Ukraine World. Irina studied journalism in Lviv and holds a master's degree in human rights and democratization from the global campus of human rights in Europe. Irina, I'm delighted to welcome to you and on a Saturday morning as well. Thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. Well, let's start off by talking about uh, Ivlev, Ignatius and his team because this is an absolutely incredible video, uh, which I uh, strongly encourage everyone to watch. And as I say, there'll be a link in there. Um, but how did that interview come about? And you know, what were your impressions of him and his team who were literally saving civilians from the hell of Russia's war? Thank you for appreciating my video and for your feedback. Um, I decided to do this video because uh, uh, I've been following uh, Ignatius and his team for a long time, and it was like I, I live in a, a war zone actually because the whole Ukraine is being attacked by Russia, uh, either by missiles or by drones. But still, like for me, his work uh, seemed like something extraordinary because I know that I would maybe not have this much courage to risk my life uh, for saving civilians at the front line and going to the worst areas of this um, war. And he's been doing that since uh, last May, as far as I know. Um, here, he's actually uh, half Russian. His mom is from Russia and he lived in, in Moscow before the full-scale invasion. But eventually he decided to come to Ukraine and help uh, rescue civilians. And to him, it's something very natural. Uh, when I asked him about his motivation, he said that it's very rewarding and that's what he can do best and he knows that he can do it and he feels like it's something like something normal, nothing extraordinary, but it's incredible work that they are doing. Um, I don't know so many people who would uh, risk their life on a daily basis to go to the front line. Uh, but of course, there are a lot of volunteers who do similar work and who are made less known uh, because they don't post everything on social media. And as well as military and police who are rescuing and evacuating people. Mm, in this video, um, we inserted some abstract about children who are being evacuated 
by the Ukrainian police unit called uh, um, uh, White Angels. And this, this is like an, an evacuation department of uh, police in the Donetsk Oblast, uh, which uh, undertakes evacuations uh, of children from uh, like different, like embattled areas in, in the East. And they are doing incredible work too. Um, but this is like an, an official um, an official team of people who are doing that. Uh, but, and that's their work. Um, but someone coming from uh, Moscow or like who could have lived in the UK and who could have enjoyed a peaceful life um, doing something else, uh, when, when such people risk their lives to do these kind of things, it's even more impressive. Um, so yeah, I, the, the interview was much longer than uh, 14 minutes. Um, it was about 14 minutes, but obviously we had to cut a lot of things, uh, not to make it too long, but um, Ignatius uh, said a lot of interesting things like how they cooperate with military. Usually they work with the 93rd Brigade uh, who helps them to coordinate um, in, at the front line because it's also very like, dangerous to go even like to the place where civilians live without knowing what's happening there, like where where Russian are uh, Russians are advancing, where like certain things could be mined or and stuff like that. So they work with military closely, and um, um, they like the military helps them a lot. Uh, to sometimes they follow them uh, to certain places. Like uh, he sent me some videos uh, from Solidar, I guess. Uh, when they were accompanied by uh, Ukrainian snipers because the area was so dangerous that they could be like shot at any moment. So uh, they were literally like uh, like surrounded by Ukrainian snipers going on the road like to the place where people lived. Was when uh, fighter jets were flying over them and then hitting some targets. So it's a complete uh, chaos and... Uh, um, it's like a real war uh, that uh, you can see on, on his Instagram even. Uh, so yeah, maybe you have some following questions that I can answer. Yes, absolutely. And I think the interesting about it is, yes, you've got the danger, you've got the intensity, but also he's not simply going to the front line, getting people into the car and leaving. It's not a taxi service because people who have remained close to the front lines uh, some of them he was describing have developed a kind of, uh, I don't know whether it's called sort of Stockholm syndrome. Or they, they've essentially, they've developed um, a mindset whereby terrible things might happen to my neighbours, but it's not going to happen to me. Or they're holding out for the very last minute. Or they've become incredibly fatalistic. Uh, you know, what happens will happen. Yeah. And some of them have even kept and hidden their children with them. So he has to go in. And in many cases, he has to negotiate. And sometimes it's very difficult to negotiate with the older generation. He has to try and negotiate through the children to persuade the family to leave. Um, can you describe a little bit about that and these negotiation techniques and even the psychology of some of the people who yeah. remained near the front lines? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's something uh, about war that makes people 
feel a bit reckless and um, and sometimes even care careless uh, um, because you're getting like the human beings are created this way that we tend to adapt to the situations we live in even in the worst conditions and we know it through history we know it through uh current war in ukraine that's uh for people it becomes like part of their life uh, after some time like the first uh, few uh, months maybe are shocking that's what i observed uh, being in ukraine during the war uh the first few months are shocking and you're kind of in a distress you're trying to process all that is happening and uh figure out how to live uh how to move forward uh, but later your brain kind of knows what is happening so it just adapts uh, adapts your life and adapts your uh, plans i don't know like your perception of the reality uh and I, we know, I we notice it even being like a bit far away from the front line. But I see, like for example, yesterday I noticed that all of my friends when we meet, like I arrived to Kiev just yesterday. But when I meet my friends, the first thing we start to talk about is like whether we heard an explosion, like during the night when when there was an attack. Uh, how was it? Like um, were you sleeping or did you wake up? But we, we talk about it in a in a way that it's not shocking anymore. It's just like part of our reality, you know? And uh, last night I also wake up from, there was an attack, a drone attack on Kyiv. But I woke up and I was like in a in an underground hostel. So I took like minus ground floor, um, minus one floor. Um, and I saw that I would, I, I would be relatively safe when something hits, you know. But if you like distance yourself from like this kind of like uh, participation in this reality, you think it's kind of crazy, like the way we talk about it. And it's the same, uh, the same happens with people close to the front line. Uh, the war in Ukraine started in 2014, uh, so a lot of people lived near the front line, uh, even though it was not that active as it is now. There were still uh, fight, uh, fightings, uh, civilians were killed like throughout eight years of Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, around 14,000 civilians were killed, so it's not that like few people, you know, it's quite a big number. Uh, and uh, but people kept kept living there. I mean, a lot of people fled, uh, but like these frontline towns and cities, they were still populated. Life was going on there, and even like in the last few years, they repaired the roads uh, to to these frontline cities to make them more like connected to the rest of Ukraine because the the, the roads in the east of Ukraine were, were terrible. Uh, and that created some kind of um, illusion that life was normal there. Um, and I think like right now, a lot of these people, because they already knew what war was, they were not so far away as maybe like people in the west of Ukraine were or in Kiev. For some people, the war didn't exist because they didn't feel it. But these people felt like they felt the consequences of war. And the full, when the full-scale invasion started, they just thought, okay, we're going to leave that too, because we already endured a lot. Uh, so many have just decided to stay and to watch their property. 
And as Ignatius said, for Ukrainians, uh, especially like for older people of maybe my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, um, like your property and what you uh, earn through life, uh, what you gain through life as uh, physical, I don't know, material is very important to you. And the people are very attached to their um, to their houses, to their uh, fields. Um, Ukrainians are uh, are attached to their land historically and traditionally speaking. They they like working on their land, and uh, to them, it's something natural that you should take care of of the land and uh, plant things and harvest and stuff like this. Um, so like for people who are not of younger generation like me or or even like younger people who who study, it's something like obvious that they should stay and and watch what they uh, what they gain through throughout their life because it, that's everything they have. And, and as Ignatius said, many of them haven't left to other parts of Ukraine. Uh, many of them just stayed in their own village for their whole life, so they can't just leave. Um, uh, so yeah, and then war creates, like if it's an ongoing, um, ongoing war, uh, it creates some kind of illusion that you're fine. Like if you were not hit yet, you're fine. Uh, if it was like if if the neighboring ha house was hit, that means that it didn't hit you. You can still live there. You know, it's just like a distortion of um, uh, of a reality that you don't think that the, that it can actually kill you. Um, and I think um, that's another uh, argument why so many people stay because they feel they feel safe under their own roof. Um, there's this illusion that your own house is something almost holy, you know, that saves you from anything, that you are protected there, but it's not true. And that's why we have uh, almost like we have on a daily basis, we have news that civilians were killed in Donetsk uh, or Luhansk Oblast or in the South. So, yeah, people just adapt. Uh, they think even if it's like the, the worst situation, even in Bakhmut where they had to live uh, in the basement for months and almost some like almost half a year, um, they think it's fine because uh, they have water, because volunteers provide food. Uh, they think that they, they will endure it and eventually that uh, that they will survive, you know, but it just, I think that this is the fact that so many humanitarian organizations and volunteers help civilians in such dire conditions, I think that it kind of um, helps uh, these people to stay there and ignore the dangers of, their, of, this, of this reality and maybe endangers them even more because Ignatius told me that uh, he he brought like toys and uh, sweets to to children who were a bit further from the front line. I think it's fine, um, but I think it's not fine when when people in, like when humanitarians encourage uh, civilians to stay in the worst condition by bringing them everything they need instead of like trying to 
to persuade them to evacuate, trying to tell them that, that it's useless, like to somehow um, explain them that uh, like the humanitarian aid will not rescue them, that they can be killed at any moment. Uh, yeah, so it's a very heartbreaking situation, especially with children when their parents traps them in such dire conditions and uh, neither the police neither the military neither the volunteers get them these children because their parents do not agree to be evacuated and according to the ukrainian law they have to be like accompanied by a legal representative either a parent and um, they just some parents just don't want to leave and they they have such a distorted perception of this reality that they don't realize they how much they endanger their children and that's why we also have a lot of casualties among our children uh, um, there were some very heartbreaking stories when children were uh, kept by their parents at the very front line and uh, volunteers were visiting them for some time to ask them to persuade their parents to leave uh, but eventually these children were killed in a strike um, and that's something like, I don't know, like I, I, I and, and maybe a lot of like Ukrainians who follow the situation uh, agree that these children have to be evacuated by force if their parents don't want to evacuate because they basically put their life at risk and these children have no choice. Many of them would like to go, but because their parents brainwash them to stay and like telling them that everything is fine these children just get like emotionally and psychologically broken They're, like you can't stay normal in this situation so it's a very heartbreaking story and that's terrible for the future isn't it because those children who survive this are going to have extraordinarily traumatic experiences which uh, even if they are you know, buried and, and 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 little understood at the moment. Those are going to emerge into into adulthood. Um, I mean, it's uh, mental trauma is going to be the subject of another episode we're going to do soon because as Ukraine edges closer towards victory, the subject of treating not just the mental trauma of of children but the entire civilian population and the military that's going to be a, an urgent need, isn't it? Uh, after victory. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I, that's what we started to talk about in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, since the beginning of war, basically, because uh, all people, like, it's a tremendous shock for your psychic to realize that your previous life just ended, like your normal life just ended and uh, you live in a war zone and like a lot of lives were just destroyed mm, not even like in terms of in terms of losses like physical losses or uh, like uh, either it's a pro it's either it's your property or it's your a relative or like your loved one a lot of people lost their loved ones either on the battlefield or as civilians like living in peaceful cities it's a tremendous trauma, but also like people who didn't lose anything physically speaking. Like I personally, I come from Western Ukraine. My family is fine. Um, my 
my family uh, still has work that they were doing before or have been doing before the war. But like something inside you just shifts because you know that it's not a normal life. And you know that like that at any moment, one of you can can die because like there are attacks everywhere. Um, and your loved one goes to the front line. So you're constantly worried about it. Like my, my brother is at the front line currently. Um, and even if you still have like physically speaking, your life going on, uh, you can work, you, you have a normal like um, daily routine. Um, you still can hang out with your friends, but it's just like mentally speaking, it's a complete shift. And it took, I think it took me maybe six months to finally like start uh, uh, start accepting it as a reality. Because like many times I would just like wake up and think it was not true. Like I would wake up in the morning and I think like, Hmm, is it like for real? Like, are we living in a war? <laughs> like, it was difficult to comprehend, and like the the scale of tragedy, like of losses, was it has been so big that it's like your brain just can't process it. And I'm speaking as a person who's fine and who hasn't lost uh, anyone uh, close to me. Uh, thanks God, uh, I know, but I know people who died, and and I, I know. Um, and I knew them like as uh, my distant friends or or my characters of my uh, videos or articles uh, that I've like been working with. Um, but like still like these losses, even though they are not like your loved ones or close family, um, it's a tremendous shock because you just scroll your social media and you see people dying like on daily basis. You see like your acquaintances, people you knew through social media, famous people, or I don't know, um, some colleagues uh, of, of your colleagues. Uh, and it's just like accumulating. Uh, so of course, like mental toll of this war is, uh, is probably incomprehensive yet. Uh, I spoke to one um, war trauma expert when I was in Sarajevo last year and uh, she works with Ukrainians and she told me that different people like perceive these kind of things differently so it doesn't mean that all of us would have PTSD um, it doesn't work like that like uh, some people are more resilient and some people are more vulnerable uh, someone can live through the most horrible things and be fine and someone can live like through I don't know an air raid and hear an explosion and he will be or they will be traumatized so yeah it's just uh, but of course it's a huge impact and even Ukrainians who evacuated who lived through the first days of war uh, in place like in Kyiv or I don't know in Bucha or Mariupol who evacuated abroad and have been living abroad for most more than a year now they are still like hurt by this war and the the perception of everything that's going on around you is different uh, and i think it it stays with you for for years or maybe even for life uh, sometimes when i was writing on my twitter 
about like how I get anxiety because of um, uh, air rate alerts, even though like I can be in a relatively safe west of Ukraine, uh, I feel like that I have anxiety when I hear it uh, because I don't know, just I can't explain it because my brain realizes that I'm fine there. That's it's very unlikely that anything uh, would fall or uh, will hit uh, my house, uh, but still like um, my body reacts to it in, in this uh, anxious way. Uh, and I know that Ukrainians who evacuated from um, wo like war war torn places and who saw like who who experienced the war in the first days, hearing planes or like huge explosions or web other weapons, uh, sounds of other weapons, they still cautious and um, they still like can't react normally to to fireworks or to you know like people who evacuated from Kharkiv or Mariupol uh, there were a lot of like cases on to, uh, that people were writing on social media that these people like were just falling on the ground uh, because of the sound of the plane uh, and they had like panic attacks so yeah it's um, it's a huge impact on on the civilians and not only civilians but also soldiers and paramedics and another another aspect of this, and it's one which is really only going to be resolved, I think, fully after the war has ended, uh, and it's going to be a very difficult one. And that, of course, is the what Russians have called the evacuation of children, what everyone else calls the abduction of Ukrainian children to Russian territory. We now know more and more uh, about this. And, of course, uh, Putin um, and um, Bill Oyer have been uh, indicted by the um, IOC. Uh, for uh, they, the, their actions uh, in the kidnapping of Ukrainian children. But it's the sheer scale that is horrifying. And I still feel that this gets far too little uh, press coverage. So if we could tackle this topic of um, the missing children, why Russia's doing this, how they're doing it, um, why the Western press really isn't getting to the bottom of this story, and shouting it all the time and how on earth is it going to be resolved um i think i saw like relatively good coverage of this topic uh in the big media but also i saw very bad coverage of this topic uh i like the podcast um uh the daily um I think it's called The Daily about Ukraine. Uh, it's the Telegraph. Uh, I really like this podcast, uh, but I, I don't want to be mistaken. Is there it's a Telegraph or New York Times? But anyway, I, I heard this I podcast about the deportation of children. Yeah, about the deportation of uh, children. And like the way it was shaped was very weird to me. Uh, they took some experts. I should have re I should have revised uh, revised that case because I even wanted to write a tweet about it. Um, they took a a person who wrote an article uh, about this. The uh, they made like an interview for the podcast, um, but the way she was talking about it sounded like a bit like I don't know diminishing. Um, they presented it like if it was nothing 
surprising or abnormal, like if it was not an actual genocide. And I, I really didn't like it because these, like, usually they cover the war and uh, try to to call out the aggressor and call out the, like, the, name the atrocities. But this, like, illegal deportation of children is one of the worst crimes um, because it actually amounts to genocide. Um, because they are not only like deporting children, they are also keeping them there uh, and they re try to re-educate re re them in a Russian way. And uh, this forced, forced uh, re-education uh, is based on Russian. Uh, they are brainwashing these children against Ukraine. And what happens later, uh, Russia militarizes children. Uh, it's a known fact for for years, Russia has been uh, militarizing their young population, uh, especially on the occupied territories, uh, but also like those who who were deported to, to Russia uh, to create like the future military to fight against Ukraine. And this is like a very planned strategy that Russia has been using for years. So to me, it was surprising that this podcast was so like, was kind of ignoring this fact. And even though they were talking about uh, the thing that uh, it was like kind of amounting to genocide, it was presented in a way that it's unsure or is debatable. And that's what I don't really like because like in the end, uh, this shapes, like you, people focus on, on what's said after you said something so if you say like okay some say it amounts to genocide but in the end nobody really knows because it's not proven and in the end people focus on the last thing that you said and that's why when i write about like the war uh, that it's a genocidal war in ukraine People tell me, oh, but uh, it's not proven that it's a genocide. Uh, you can't say, like, you can't use the word genocide for everything. I mean, it's not proven yet because this, they don't, like, use this term legally speaking, and it takes years. It can take years to, uh, to identify it, uh, to define it as genocide. But we see what is happening. And if you look through the cases, uh, through through the pattern of what Russia is doing in Ukraine, you can see that it's like uh, putting ticks to almost all of all of these um, um, uh, arguments that say that it amounts to genocide. So yeah, I think um, the, the problem with media that many of them do it just like because it's a hot topic. Many of them. Uh, um, do it for sensation uh like uh, the last interview of vice with maria lvova bilova is just like a horrible example how, how not to do an interview um and how not to manipulate on such topics um because like it's not even about like that she couldn't do this like the journalist couldn't do this interview of course she could and uh, as we all support the free press and freedom of expression, 
uh, it's normal that they wanted to do this interview and they had an access and opportunity to do it. But if you're not ready, like if you're not following the topic, if you're not like uh, digging into the issue for some time, if you don't understand how international law, international humanitarian law and um, other things uh, like conventions, uh, international conventions work, it's better not to do this interview, you know, because like if you touch upon such a serious topic and you don't know how to cover it, you can do more harm than good. And eventually that's what happened with this uh, interview with Maria Lvova Belova in Moscow. She, like the journalist, Isabel, I think her name is Isabel, uh, just was like trapped in a, in a conditions put like set by Russians. Uh, and she couldn't like find a way out uh, in, in, in terms of her questions to Maria Lvova Belova. Uh, when she asked her, like, are you a war criminal? Like Maria Lvova just laughed and said, I'm a mother. And she's like presenting herself as a saint, you know? And that's like the image they created around her, that she's a saint who adopts a lot of children to save them from whoever, from the Russian army, I don't know, who bombs Ukrainian cities. Uh, and she's just like a righteous priest. And Vice just agreed on, on uh, underlying lighting this image of her without questioning like furtherly why you did this and this and this it's like when she said when she always found a justification for like some stupid just justification from Russian propaganda the journalist didn't try to confront it and do you think her um propaganda and this is interesting yeah. because I think this gets to the heart of why some reporting is relatively good and some is is not so good. Um, I watch Times Radio uh, a lot, uh, as well as many Russian sources, and there seems to be a pattern. You know, those journalists who consistently focus on the Ukraine topic and have a chance to do research, have a chance to read books and actually, you know, dive deeper into the topic. Um and who have more time perhaps to research the interview and come with very specific information, um, especially around, let's say, you know, the definition of uh, genocide and, and specific laws that have been broken. Um, those tend to be better, but also it's a, it's a kind of positive loop. Those kind of interviewers will tend to get the right kind of guests, the kind of guests that actually themselves are more knowledgeable who have more of a, say, activist or strong uh, opinion about what's going on. Um, on the other hand, you'll get more junior, perhaps, uh, reporters, not given much time to prepare, and they come in with the sort of the left-right, you know, is it this, is it that? They come in with this idea of needing to be balanced, and they don't ask, actually, questions that get to the heart of a problem. Um, do you think there's a there's a problem in the in the very sort of structure and organization uh, of uh, how many media organizations work? Um, I think um, I, I, it's a very like, like common mistake. I don't know or a problem uh, within 
international media that because they cover so many things in the world, especially with international media, they try to look unbiased and balanced, as you said. And like, if you can keep some kind of balance in a, I don't know, in a country where there's a civil war and still like, there's always like, there's always the truth and there's always like a more manipulative side, you know. But like here, uh, many journalists just ignore that it's a, it's an imperial conquest, like it's a colonial kind of war. And Ukrainians are oppressed people that they are not fighting like between each other. Like they're not, Ukrainians are not fighting with Ukrainians, you know, who suddenly became pro-Russian. That's like a misconception that's been, uh, that's been around since 2014, eventually finally changed. Uh, even though it was very difficult to to like persuade and like to tell many media that it's a wrong coverage till uh, the full-scale invasion happened. It was not obvious. Like people still fell into this trap of Russian propaganda and kept kept uh, reaffirming these um, bad uh, misconceptions about Ukraine and about this war. Eventually changed. But I think not all journalists, or like maybe it's on the media level, understood that it's a colonial war and that it's not like it's a different scale of of conflict. It's not an internal conflict that many have covered before. Um, well, that what happened in Syria, in Afghanistan, or I don't know, in African countries, uh, it's a completely different um, war and it demands a different coverage. And there are uh, straight, uh, straight, um, uh, I forgot the word, um, straight violations of international war or, or law. And you, so if you know that there's like an imperial war and there are strict violations of uh, international law, you should dig into that law you should like dis discover what it means why russia is like committing uh, uh, such and such crimes why it's an aggressor why like the icc issued a, a, uh, an arrest warrant what genocide means like i think many journalists don't just don't put much effort to uh, to like educate themselves on 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 the matters that are like central right now. And they just try to cover uh, this war from the perspective of, uh, from the like standard pattern that they used to project on all other countries where the civil war happened, you know? So they try to, to pretend that there's some kind of balance, not to look too biased, not to look like too pro-Ukrainian, but eventually, they just like fall into the trap of Russian propaganda because they don't dig into that like much. They are not like Ukrainian journalists who are following Russian propaganda all the time and who know like all their manipulative uh, narratives that they use to convince the world that, oh, it's Ukrainians who are like Ukrainians are Russians. So it's nothing abnormal that we try like to, to I don't know, uh, help them or to take them to Russia and um, keep them there, you know? Yeah, just like one thing, 
uh, when I worked uh, before uh, Cave the Cave Independent, I worked as a local producer with international media, um, specifically with a national public radio in America. And there were a lot of reporters who were coming to Ukraine to cover the war who've never been to Europe. Like, I, I know, um, maybe they, they went to Europe like as a, as a I don't know, tourist, but they never covered uh, Ukraine. They've never covered Eastern Europe. They didn't know much about uh, what was happening before. Some of them didn't know anything about Ukraine. And like when I saw them trying to cover like serious topics that actually impacted the opinion of Americans about Ukraine uh, in general, I was like, dude, like maybe you should first dig into like read wikipedia and like dig into ukrainian history understand that ukrainians were fighting against russian colonization for centuries that uh ukrainian nationalism like has been ongoing for a century to to actually gain freedom and independence and then maybe like i don't know try to read to, to educate yourself a bit you know so eventually my work at the beginning was just like trying to explain Ukraine to these people. And that's like pretty, um, how do you say, pretty risky uh, situation because if you don't get a good local producer who doesn't know much about Ukraine or who doesn't like know history or who hasn't been following political, uh, social and, and cultural uh, life in Ukraine much, you won't get like good background for covering this war. And um, I think it's important to understand like the time of how things were developing and how Russia was utilizing, was instrumentalizing Russian language, Russian uh, culture in Ukraine to, to erase Ukrainian identity and things like this. It's everything is important. Uh, it's not just about like missiles flying and civilians being killed it's a context that you should understand and this is very much an informational war um yes there as you say there are missiles there's an extraordinarily long front line there is a scale of physical fighting uh that really you can you know only go back to world war ii to see you know similar kind of intensity yeah. certainly in urban warfare that we're seeing in bakhmut and other places nonetheless Russia pours a vast amount of resources into informational warfare, uh, disinformation and propaganda. I think it's very obvious to those who have, uh, you know, looked into into the detail of this or who even, uh, you know, like myself, can actually listen to Russian sources as well, Russian opposition sources. You start to build up a picture and you start to sense when someone is saying something which may be wrong, but it's something they're trying to formulate or when they say something wrong and they're actually reproducing a propaganda trope uh, or a phrase or a concept that's clearly been designed yeah. to weaponize. Yeah, I think country. that's... Uh... <laughs> you've looked into disinformation, you've looked into propaganda narratives extensively, uh, you know, in your reporting and work. And, you know, in, in, in the last part of the interview, I really wanted to focus on you know, what are those current narratives that you still see popping up in the media? What narratives is Russia trying to use? Because we've seen different narratives in different countries, different narratives in Ukraine, in the East and the West, and we've mm -hmm. seen those narratives evolve 
through the course of the war. They're constantly testing new messages. So what should we be aware of right now? Well, there are a lot of things, uh, starting from referendums, when, uh, like, most of the media, I think, didn't dare to put brackets when Russia announced its referendums, so-called referendums in uh, the occupied territories, and big international media just wrote, like, referendums are happening. But these are just, like, fake like they, it's not just it doesn't even look like a referendum it's like a total fraud they are just like they were just like taking uh soldiers and and people some weird people to go from flat to flat in occupied territories and ask people to put a tick like to to vote for a referendum it's it was complete a complete farce and uh, it was very shocking that so many media did not understand like that the, there can be no elections on the occupied territory by the occupying force uh under under like the the machine gun you know like when when the soldier comes to you with a machine gun of course you will vote or like many people were just like hiding in their flats with closed door but still i saw this like uh, i wrote about it uh, about these referendums uh, so called referendums in occupied territories because it was a very um uh very very weird thing to me that people who were covering ukraine for quite some time were still falling into that trap um not distinguishing like real democratic process from this farce that was happening in uh, in the occupied territories of Ukraine, uh, and we we've talked about uh, these illegal deportations, which many media still called evacuation because Russia said so. So, like the thing is that many media just try to cover what Russia says, and that's especially true for um, French and. Um, Italian media, they are very prone to like reiterating Russian narratives and Russian propaganda. Uh, it's quite toxic, like the media environment there. Um, and uh, like famous uh, news, uh, news outlets slash radio RFE in France. I remember that vividly, they were just like saying, uh, that Moscow authorities uh, are evacuating civilians, na, 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 na. Uh, Putin said that they will be safe and stuff like this. Uh, but like they didn't try, they didn't even try to oppose it to what Ukraine said, and they didn't even try to explain like in what context this was happening. So it looked like the news looked like it was really an evacuation of civilians from the dangerous zone. And Russia is kind of like a good savior, you know. But that's just like, I don't know. I think it's ignorance of journalists. And I think it's unprofessionalism because they don't try to learn the context of what they are writing about. And that's basically giving a platform to Russian propaganda to the Kremlin. Because that's what they want the world to believe. They want the world to believe that they are... Uh, righteous saviors that they that Ukraine is endangering civilians by keeping them there by bombarding cities that they just came to liberate and not even putting brackets to these words or like not saying not giving like the opposite 
um, view on of the reality is uh, very dangerous and it's not like just words it's just shaping people's perception it impacts the the assistance ukraine uh, ukraine gets like the support of ukraine in the world and eventually it impacts the civilians civilians on the ground like what we if we don't have enough weapons if we don't have like protective uh air defense uh, we are screwed uh here and uh, more civilians die so that's a direct connection to what media write, how they shape the public opinion. Uh, thanks God, we don't see uh, we don't see terminology like civil war anymore. That's the only, that's a good thing. Uh, but for example, like in the interview of Maria Lvo, uh, of of uh, Isabel Young from Vice, uh, there was uh, when she was explaining like that uh, Russia deported children from the occupied territory and from annexed Crimea. That's also like a wrong terminology because Russia wants to say that it was an annexed territory uh, that returned to its historical cradle. But eventually this is just like occupied territory and it's, it, it's illegally taken territory. It's not like just annexed, you know? Uh, so yeah, these are small things, but they they stuck. They like they main, remain in your mind, like somewhere in the back of your mind. And if you think about Ukraine, you don't know much. You just use this terminology, and that's what shapes your perception. Um, we can still see like Russian. Um, wait, wait, let me let me think about it. Like person person or uh, I don't know uh, some other occupied territories when they were occupied uh, about their authorities so-called authorities these are no real not real authorities these are just like installed Russian installed proxies like people who are there illegally and some media presented them as if, if where they were real administration you know mm. so yeah it's just a lot of things that U Ukrainians keep uh saying like about like it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong but so many media just keep ignoring it and especially like i mean it's a reuters for example it's like a constant thing um but it's connected to tas and i think they're quite like uh pro-russian in the, their um terminology change i mean i but constantly some, find myself getting uh, uh but some triggered by but, reuters yeah but some yeah, but also some other media like French media fall into it, AFP, RFE, um, Washington Post falls into this trap. Uh, for example, like lately, they said that um, that Prigozhin had connection to Ukraine and that's like where, I, I don't remember exactly how, what it was, but uh, eventually they said they got some le intelligence leaks uh about like Prigozhin and Ukraine and, and the Russian like um militias helping Ukraine stuff like this but like publishing this information is obviously sensational but it doesn't make any good you know and I, I sometimes we just don't understand why why they publish it is it only like for being sensational okay but what do you by it like you just 
like maybe you just play into Russian propaganda and it's just like a subtle thing, but to us, it's kind of obvious, but it seems like to big media, it's not always obvious, even though they have like on the ground correspondents who are always here, but still they do these stupid things that uh, discredit like all the work, like that undermine the work of Ukraine to resist uh, to the Russian aggression. And one of the big uh, narratives that Russia is pushing and has been pushing for a few months is as they start to realize that defeat is becoming more and more likely, then, of course, the propaganda narrative is going to carry on with this idea that Russia is too big, you can't defeat Russia, or what comes after Putin is going to be far worse than Putin, as if that's actually possible. Um, and they're going to be using propaganda to push for a negotiation and a truce that's uh, beneficial to them, the aggressor, um, uh, with a view to potentially yeah. you know, restarting this aggression in a few years' time. So where do you see the propaganda shifting um because it always aligns with what russia's interests are it always aligns with some strategic objective yeah that's another uh, topic that is like constantly on them how do you say constantly disturbs ukrainians uh trying to explain that look, this war can't be ended by negotiations because Russia doesn't negotiate, doesn't want to negotiate. And for them, negotiations mean to uh, to give some territories of Ukraine to Russia. So it's basically a concession. Uh, and like some foreigners saying that it's like fine to concede some territories, that it's nothing brave. I doubt that they would be willing to concede their territories. Like, let's say, France or I don't know uh, the US, um, but for some reason, like they don't see Ukraine as an international actor. Like they don't see Ukraine as a as a player on an international ground. They see it as a as a boy. I don't know uh, as a something that you can agree on or that's something that you can decide for. You know. It's very irritating for Ukrainians. And um, I think this year uh, we've kind of like convinced a lot of people that um, Ukraine can decide for itself and we are willing to fight and we are going to end this war by winning this war, whatever it takes. So many people understood that, but I think like for uh, people, maybe within a bit of imperial mindset, like who come from former empires, like, I don't know, France or or the US, maybe not the empire, but was still with a bit of imperial mindset, or maybe like the UK, it's a bit difficult to comprehend that a small country can decide for itself. And that's what Ukrainians can are trying to explain. Uh, they don't understand that they are falling into the propaganda narrative about uh they think that that's their peacemaking mindset uh, that that would be better for ukrainian civilians but ukrainians know for sure that this this like if we concede territories and like russia will will take some part of like eastern southern ukraine and we will just leave it like there and then live peacefully that's a complete misconception i think these people just should read more 
what was happening on the occupied territories in Ukraine when Russia was there, like in the Kherson region, uh, in Kyiv region, mass graves, uh, uh, I don't know, huge uh, torture, like a lot of torture chambers, thousands of civilians who are who went missing, who were tortured, who were kidnapped, uh, I don't know, raped and stuff like this. It's just like so thousands of war crimes and and you could be like abducted and uh, killed for nothing like just having i don't know a ukrainian symbol at home or just like knowing speaking the ukrainian language to to your neighbor you would be treated like a traitor you know mm, i don't know why for so many people it's difficult to understand that russia is a colonizer that it wants to erase ukrainian identity how it was has been doing for centuries uh, and i think um, many just don't link this narrative about peace negotiations to what russia is trying to present to the world uh, russia is, wants the world to think that it's a peacemaker and meanwhile um secede more like take more territories of ukraine so to the world, it says that we are saving, we're liberating these territories and we're just going to be like fine there. We're just going like to put our flag and and give like jobs and, and uh, like just like make these people more like Russian, but everything is going to be fine. We're just like liberating our own uh, regions where people mostly speak Russian, which is also not true. But on the other side, like when they are saying this to the world, but meanwhile, they are um, conducting genocide. And I think it's a very dangerous, like this peacenik mindset that people who say, oh, we just want peace. Let's just live in peace. Let's love each other. Let's just end the war. They don't know how to end the war, but they want to end the war so that like nobody shoots, but they don't care what happens after. But what Russia is doing meanwhile and will do if this happens is genocide. So it doesn't make any sense to say that we will end the war by just like stop, to, like it, it, the war will end if they just stop shooting, you know? To us, the war ends when we just like move them out of Ukraine, when we will kick them out and liberate our territories and our people, that's it. And And then of course, kick them out and ensure that you are armed to the teeth uh, to keep them out. I think that's the crucial thing. Kick them out yeah. and keep them out and keep educating the world about what Russia is, what its intentions are, um, because its propaganda is extremely pervasive. Yeah, I think many people also don't understand if Russia like takes uh, more territory, that it means that it will prepare furtherly for further occupation. So it's not by random choice that they decided to take Kyiv. Their plan was to take the fall of Ukraine. Their, like, their plan, they thought they didn't estimate Ukraine well. They know nothing about Ukraine for some reason, uh, which, is, which was very surprising that their intelligence was completely wrong. And they thought that Ukrainians would just give up and like, accept Russia, you know. So their plan was just to take the whole of Ukraine. And uh, it doesn't mean that by kicking them out from Kyiv that they don't want this anymore. If they occupy like a bit of the east of Ukraine and a bit of the south, they will, they will be preparing for more. So this will by 
no way to in no way it will end the war it will just like prepare the ground for further escalation for further war and um, it will just like have an even bigger toll in, uh, in in the future and that's what happened with Crimea and Donbass that was the big mistake of European politicians who especially like Merkel who pushed for these Minsk agreements and who asked Ukraine not to shoot, like just leave it like this. They will be just like some kind of a frozen conflict. Uh, nothing will be moving, uh, it will be fine, just a gray zone. But in the end, we just helped Russia to, to prepare for this full-scale invasion. I mean, in the, eventually it helped Ukraine to prepare too because we didn't have a, a real army to fight Back in 2014, uh, Ukraine was uh, had no army because of Yanukovych and the former government. They just uh, destroyed our army, basically. They sold all, all the weapons to, to Russia and gave up on, uh, on, uh, on the fleet in uh, Crimea. There was only a Russian fleet there. So, uh, but it, it gave us some time and opportunities to prepare. And that's why our army was uh, so like fighting so well because it had like eight years but like speaking of um speaking of russia's plans it helped basically for them to to invade to start this full-scale invasion and the work you're doing is incredibly important i know we sort of come to the end of of, of our uh, time exploring these topics but arena i strongly advise people to check out your videos and your articles and to re-regularly reference the Kiev Independent because it's much more important, I think, for people to get sort of knowledge from people who are on the ground who understand the local history. And in no way is the Kiev Independent sort of biased or nationalistic. It's an incredibly detailed uh, newspaper. It's often far more critical of uh, Zelensky, his government, his officials, than any stories you'll see in the Western media. Uh, and I feature it very heavily in the sort of weekly updates of the news we do as well. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important. And and again, there's another newspaper called Moscow Times run by, you know, a mixture of expats who remarkably still report on some of the nuances happening within Russia. And I strongly advise people to look at these local news sources that uh, run incredibly detailed um, you know, explorations of what's happening and have this sort of firsthand uh, sort of witness uh, aspect to it. Well, thank you so much, Irina. I know you're calling us from a cafe um, and you're in the field, as so it were, much. and it's difficult. Uh, so I greatly appreciate you spending so much time. Thank you so much. I really wanted to say that uh, the Kiev Independent is has a very good coverage, and that's the reason why I agreed to work there. Because my plan was to stay an independent journalist after I quit uh, local producing, but uh, one of my friends works uh, at the video department, and she invited me, and uh, eventually I agreed because I knew that the Kiev Independent is doing a great work, and they are very critical towards everything, uh, and if there's something bad happening in, in internally speaking in Ukraine, they would always cover it. Uh, we would always cover it. And there are a lot of investigations uh, which are not portraying Ukraine in a good light, but we think it's important to speak about everything because eventually, uh, eventually we, what we, we are fighting for is freedom and uh, democracy and uh, the, the rule of law. And uh, 
and that's what all Ukrainians are fighting for. We want to be uh, like democratic, a democratic country with transparent systems and uh, and eventually we need to talk about things that are not so um, so rosy, you know, so like we, we can't uh, look at the everything with, with pink glasses. Uh, so yeah, I just invite everyone to read our stories, to watch our videos, please subscribe to our YouTube. That's what I'm working on. And uh, thank you for following Ukraine and for your um, channel as well that you're covering ukraine on a day on a constant uh, on a regular basis <laughs>